Let's jump into the message this Easter. We are in a series called The Gospel as a Church, which I believe can't be any more appropriate than to talk about on Easter, because Easter is what makes the gospel possible. And what we've been doing as a church is we're looking at this word gospel and asking ourselves, what does this word mean? Because if I interviewed the majority of the crowd today, what is the word gospel? Many of you would say the gospel is the story of Jesus. It's the story of Easter. It's, it's what Jesus did for us. That is the gospel. But here's my question. What was the gospel when Jesus used the word? You see, Jesus responding to John the Baptist's disciples, talking about his ministry on earth, he says, the poor have the gospel preached to them. What did this word mean when Jesus used the word? Because at this time in history, the gospel was not the story of Jesus because the story of Jesus was still being written. So what was Jesus trying to communicate? Well, when you study this word, the gospel, you see our English version of the New Testament is a translation from the original Greek language. And so this word gospel in the original Greek, we looked at it a few weeks ago, is the Greek word euvangelizo which literally translated is good news. It's a historic news event. It's a headline that changes the status of people, much like the Greek evangelist, the Greek herald went throughout the Greek world when they defeated the Persians and said, you're no longer a slave, you are now free. You see, when Jesus intentionally chose the word gospel to describe who he was, what he was about, and what he was trying to create, what Jesus was doing is saying, what I've come to give you, what I've come to bring is not a religion. It's a gospel. And the very use of the word gospel means this is the exact opposite of religion. That Christianity is not a religion. Christianity is a gospel. And these are radically different concepts. You see, a religion at its best is good advice. A gospel is good news. You see, a religion is good advice. This is how you should live your life. Here's rules that you should follow. If you obey these commands, you're going to feel better about yourself. You're going to live a better life. You're going to earn the approval of God, the enlightenment, reincarnation, whatever it is, the goal of that religion. Because basically, if we were honest, all religions teach the exact same thing. All religions are a list of rules, a list of commands, a list of a, a, a lifestyle disciplines that if you follow this and you obey this and you do this at the end of your life, if you, if you do well enough, then you're going to reach the epitome of that religion, whether it's God's acceptance, approval, heaven, re-enlightenment, incarnation, whatever it is. But all religion at its best is good advice. That's radically different than gospel. Because gospel is not good advice, gospel is good news. Jesus did what we could not do for ourselves. That God is not judging me based on my performance and based on my obedience and based on how well I do. God is judging me based on what Jesus did on my behalf on the cross. That's different than religion. That God accepts me, not because I'm a good person. God accepts me because Jesus was a good person. Because Jesus took my place. Jesus died the death that I should have died so that I can live the life that he should have lived. In other words, God treated Jesus the way I deserve to be treated so that 
God can treat me the way Jesus deserves to be treated. And so what we see through this word gospel is Jesus is saying there's two approaches to God. You can take a religious approach to God or you can take a gospel approach to God and they're radically, radically different. And I sat around this week and just kind of meditated on Easter and thought about Easter. And let's just, if we can be honest and real for a moment, the truth is every Easter as a church, we, we have twice as many people in church than we typically have throughout the year. Like this, year, this Easter, we'll have over 2,000 people attending services throughout today and last night. And now let's be honest about the crowd of people. The majority of these people are here every year for Easter, but then we don't see them again until next Easter. Can we be honest? Like that, That's just the reality. There are a lot of people who come to church once or twice a year. They come on Easter and Christmas Eve, and that's all you see them. Now, I, I'm, not, I'm not mad about that. I, I don't want anyone to ever feel judged or condemned because of that fact. What I want to do is ask the question, why? Why would somebody only come to church twice a year? Why would somebody, in light of who God is, only come to church once or twice a year? I believe with all of my heart that people do it because they have the wrong view of God. They have the wrong idea of God. They believe in the wrong approach to God. You see, most people, they they really think Christianity is a religion. And if I could be very honest with you, if I believed Christianity was a religion, I would only show up once a year. Because religion is hard. Religion is difficult. Religion makes you feel like like you're not good enough. Religion makes you feel like you're not doing enough. And, And if I constantly felt like I'm not good enough and I'm not doing enough, I wouldn't show up very often. Because I don't need anything else in my life to make me feel worse about myself than I already do. You know what I mean? So I don't need religion to make my life more difficult, more ugly, more hard. And so what I want you to understand is what Jesus is doing by using this word gospel is saying, I brought something completely different to you. Like this is not a religion, it's a gospel. And I truly believed for people who only come once a year, if they began to filter Christianity through the gospel. They began to look at God through the gospel. They began to look at life through the gospel. They would want to be here every week because the gospel is good news. You can't get enough of good news. Like you want, you crave for good news. You you want to hear good things about your life. You want to know something good. Like, like you long for the good. I mean, that's why we're, we're constantly looking for good things to make our life better. You want good news. And so if you really understood Christianity through the gospel, it would change your approach. So what I want to do today is we're going to contrast two characters in the Bible. One who had a very religious approach to God. One who had a very gospel approach to God. And he's one of my favorite characters in the Bible. It's the disciple John, one of the 12 disciples that Jesus had. And the title of the message today is The Secret of John. Because here's the thing. John had a secret none of the other disciples knew about. John had a secret. And because of the secret John had, when you study his life, he had benefits the other disciples did not have. You see, John was the only disciple at the foot of the cross when Jesus died. 
All of the other disciples betrayed Jesus, abandoned Jesus. They were hiding in fear for their life. But John was the disciple at the foot of the cross when Jesus died. Why? Because he had a secret. He knew something the other guys didn't know. As a result, he had benefits they didn't have. John was the disciple that Jesus gave the most precious thing in his life to, his mother. Take care of my mother when I'm gone. John was the disciple that, according to history, is the only disciple we know of who did not die a martyr's death. John was the disciple who had the vision of things to come and wrote the book of Revelation. John had benefits none of the other disciples had because he knew something none of the other disciples knew. He had a secret. And when I began to discover this secret, it's what changed my life. It's what set me free. You see, I grew up in a very religious environment. And religion only made my addiction worse. When I discovered the gospel, when I discovered the secret that John knew, it began to transform and set me free. So let's, let's dig into some of his teaching a little bit and see if we can reveal the secret that John had. In one of John's letters, 1 John chapter 4, he says, we have come to know and have believed. Those are two very important concepts. We've got to know and believe. What does that mean? It's not enough to intellectually know something in your mind. You also have to believe it in your heart. We've got to know it in our mind. We've got to believe it in our heart. What? The love which God has for us. Right there, John is saying that this is completely opposite of religion. You see, if Christianity was a religion, it would say, we got to know and believe the love we have for God. Because it's about our performance. It's about how well we obey. It's about how much we do. But John doesn't say that. He's saying, look, it's not about our love for God. It's about the love that God has for us. Again, good news. That's good news. If it was about how much you loved God, that's not good news. Because I can never love God enough. I can never be good enough. I can never do enough for him. God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this, love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. This is one of the things I desire for you. I want you to have confidence in the day. When, when you die and you stand before God, I want you to have confidence. Why? Because you know how much God loves you. See, the truth is a lot of people are afraid of death because they don't know where they stand with God. Because they have a warped view of God. They have a religious view of God. They don't understand who God is and how, how crazy God is about them with love. In other words, if God had a refrigerator in heaven, your picture would be on the front. <laughs> and he'd be like, this is my boy. This is my girl. I love them. God's crazy about you. And then I love this because as he is, so also are we. Meaning, as Jesus is, that's the way God treats us. God loves us the very same way he loves Jesus because of what Jesus did on our behalf. And I know that's hard for some of you to believe because you look at your life and you look at your sin and you look at your failure and you're thinking, there's no way God can love me like that. The truth is, God's not looking at your sin. He's looking at the cross. He's looking at what happened on Easter because what happened on Easter makes you righteous, makes you worthy, makes you acceptable to God, regardless of how well you're doing. See, God loves me not because I'm good. I'm not good. God loves me because Jesus was good. 
And that's good news. So also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is taking the wrong approach to God. The one who fears is viewing God through religion. The one who fears is not perfected in love, because that is the gospel. You see, there's a lot of people who are afraid of God. Unfortunately, I grew up in a very religious church who took the wrong approach to God. And I'll admit to you that there are many people who have taken the gospel and they have turned it into a religion and they've made it ugly and they've made it hard and they've made it difficult. And I grew up in that church. I grew up in a church scared of God because I thought God was this cosmic cop in the sky waiting to catch me doing something wrong. Like he couldn't wait to catch me doing something wrong so he could smite me with punishment. Like that was my view of God. I didn't believe God loved me. I didn't believe God even liked me. I believe I had to work my entire life just to do enough for God to maybe, just maybe, let me slide into heaven when I die. And that was because I was taught a very religious view of God, which is not the view of the Bible. It's not the view of Jesus. Jesus said, look, I'm going to paint a picture of my father that the world will never believe. And he did. And this is why Christianity... When you study history, according to the Roman Empire, they call Christians atheists for the first 200 years. Because the claims Christians made about God, no religion would ever say that about God. Because again, Christianity is the exact opposite of religion. And so John had this secret. He knew something. And here's the secret. We love because he, God, first loved us. See, what John is saying is we love God because he first loved us. We love our wives because God first loved us. We love our children because God first loved us. You see, I don't have the capacity or the ability to love until God takes his love and deposits it in my life. So until I receive God's love, until I allow God to deposit his love into my life, I don't have real love to give people because my human love will fail people. My human love will never be enough. My human love will fail my children, fail my wife. There are times where my human love just doesn't cut it. I need something beyond my human love. That's why I've got to allow God to first love me so that I have the capacity to love others. And this was the secret that John understood. And let me show you how this works, because again, there's two approaches to God. There's two approaches to the Bible. There's two approaches to Jesus. You can approach it through religion, or you can approach it through the gospel. I'm going to show you very quickly how this works when you interpret the Bible. You can interpret the Bible through a religious filter. You can interpret the Bible through a gospel filter. Let me show you a verse. This is what something Jesus said in John chapter 14. If you love me, keep my commands. Now, I grew up in a church that interpreted this verse through a religious filter. And you know what I heard growing up? You know what was taught to me growing up? You better keep his commands. If you don't do what Jesus says, you don't love him. You better obey, because if you don't obey, you don't love Jesus. If you love Jesus, you wouldn't be doing that right now. Some of you grew up in that church, too. You know what I mean? There is a way that you can interpret this verse through religion that is hard, that is ugly, that is mean, that is difficult, and that's what many of us heard growing up 
If you love Jesus, you wouldn't be doing that. If you love Jesus, you would obey. But understanding who Jesus was and is, that's not at all what he's saying. Remember, John, who wrote this gospel, is the same John that wrote the letter, 1 John 4, that said, we, we only have the capacity to love. We only have the ability to love when God first loves us. So what Jesus is saying is, look, when, when I love you and I put my love in your life, then you have the ability to love me. And if you love me, this, this is what Jesus is saying. Look, just love me. If you love me, you'll keep my commands. If you just fall in love with me, you'll do what I want you to do. I'm not worried about all that. Just love me. The question is, what side of the comma do you live on? Are you living on the keep my commands side of the comma or the love me side of the comma? If you live on the right side of the comma, the other side happens naturally. All Jesus is saying, look, just love me. Just fall in love with me. If you're in love with me, if you let me love you and you love me, you'll do what I want you. I'm not worried about it. You'll, you'll do all that. Just focus on me. Do you see how there's two ways to approach it? You can interpret that verse through religion. You can interpret that verse through the gospel. You're going to get a radically different result. Which side of the comma do you live on? So let me show you. The best way I can illustrate these two approaches to the lives of two of the disciples. The first disciple I'm going to look at for a moment, and then we'll come back to the disciple John, is the disciple Peter. Now, Peter, many people would assume, was the closest person to Jesus. Peter had the most words and conversation to Jesus in the gospel. Peter was in the inner circle with Jesus. He was one of the three. Peter was, you know, watched Jesus heal people privately. Peter was on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus when Moses and Elijah appeared. Peter was there. So many people, and Peter was passionate. So many people would assume that Peter was the closest disciple to Jesus. Like Peter, when you, when you study who Peter was, Peter was your typical type A, very successful, very driven, very wealthy businessman. That's who Peter was. Like, I was actually in Peter's home a few weeks ago in Capernaum uh, on the Sea of Galilee when I was in Israel. They've excavated his home from the first century, what they believe to be his home, and they're very certain it's the spot Peter lived. And it was the most prime piece of real estate in the city. It was the largest home in the city. And we know Peter was wealthy because he owned one of the most lucrative businesses of that time period in the first century, a fishing business. He had boats, he had employees, they were exporting fish throughout the Roman Empire to Caesar and everyone else. Galilee was the cultural center of Israel at the time. So he's not this kind of backwoods character that had nothing going on in his life and it was easy to just kind of go follow Jesus. No, he was very successful, very driven, business owner, wealthy, had to walk away from all of that to follow Jesus. But he was this type A, workaholic, driven, always kind of outspoken, saying stupid things throughout the Bible. And, and, on, and on first glance, you would assume that Peter was the closest to Jesus. But let me show you a story that kind of reveals Peter's relationship with Jesus. In the, in the Last Supper, you know, the night before Jesus was betrayed, he's, he's having dinner with the disciples, and he says, one of you is going to betray me. And look at how Peter deals with that. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's talking about John, was reclining next to Jesus. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, ask him which one he means. Which is interesting to me because why didn't Peter ask him himself? 
right? You see, Peter realized that John had a closeness to Jesus that he didn't have. John, again, John had a secret none of the other disciples knew. And so instead of asking Jesus himself, he had John ask him. Why? Because Peter's identity, Peter's approach, Peter's view of coming to Jesus was filtered through three simple words. I love Jesus. That was Peter's approach. That was Peter's identity. And that is the definition of religion. Jesus, I love you. I'll die for you. I'm the one that loves you. Look at me, Jesus. Look at how much I'm doing for you, Jesus. You see the striving in that statement? Peter's making it all about himself. Another place in the gospel in Matthew 26, Peter replied, even if everyone else falls away on account of you, I never will. Truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. Peter loved Jesus. I love you, Jesus. I'll die for you, Jesus. If everyone else betrays you, I'll never leave you, Jesus. His identity was built in I love Jesus. And as a result, Peter was weak. He was insecure. He failed. He betrayed Jesus. He disowned Jesus. All because he had the wrong approach. He built his identity in the wrong thing. Now, before you think I'm preaching heresy, let me contrast this with the right approach with the disciple John. You see, John, four times in the Bible, the Bible says the disciple whom Jesus loved. The disciple whom Jesus loved. Every time it was talking about the disciple John. I used to believe that John was the favorite. I used to believe that Jesus loved John more than he loved all the other disciples. Until I realized who wrote that statement? You only find that statement in the book of John. <laughs> Matthew never said that. Mark never said it. Luke never said it. Only John says it. Four times John says, I'm the disciple that Jesus loves. He wasn't saying he was the favorite. He wasn't saying that Jesus loved him more than all the rest. He was just stating the fact. You see, that was the secret that he knew. See, John's identity was radically different than Peter. Peter's identity was, I love Jesus. John's identity was, Jesus loves me. That's the gospel. And that's a radically different approach to God. See, you can approach God with, I love Jesus, make it all about you and how well you're doing and how hard you're working and how much you obey and how much you go to church and how much you pray. Or you can make it all about Jesus, which is good news. And as a result, John had a security and a confidence the other guys didn't have, and he had benefits the other guys didn't have because he wasn't making it about him. He was making it about Jesus. And what I love about Jesus is he still loved Peter, and he constantly gave Peter chance after chance. After the resurrection, Jesus tells the disciples to go to Galilee, wait for me. I'll be there. 
Peter's back fishing. The reason he's fishing is because in Peter's mind, I'm no longer a disciple. I've lost that privilege. He goes back to the family business. He's out fishing, and he doesn't recognize Jesus. Jesus says, cast your net to the other side. Peter casts the net to the other side, catches all these fish, realizes who it is, jumps in the water, swims to shore. Jesus has breakfast ready. They eat. After breakfast, they take a walk, him and Peter. And when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And the Greek word that Jesus uses here is agape, which is God's perfect love. Basically, what he was asking Peter is, Peter can't agape love Jesus until first Peter receives love. We agape because he first agape us, right? He's asking Peter, Peter, have you figured it out yet? It's not about you. Peter, do you have agape love for me more than all of these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I, now look at this. Peter uses a different word in the Greek. You know that I love you, phileo. Phileo is brotherly love, human love. The city of Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Peter's like, you know I've got human love for you, Jesus. Look how hard I'm working. Look how hard I'm striving. Look how much I'm doing for you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Now, Jesus didn't actually have lambs. This was a metaphor for his people. He's like basically telling Peter, Peter, you're still on my team. I haven't kicked you out. Again, Jesus answered, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Do you agape me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I phileo love you. You know that I've got human love for you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. And then the third time, Jesus switches it up. He says to him, Simon, son of John, do you even have human love for me? Do you even have phileo love for me? And that's when Peter was hurt because Peter knew his human love wasn't enough. His human love led him to disown Jesus three times. And he was hurt because Jesus asked the third time, and he says, Lord, you know all things. You know that I phileo love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. See, what I love about Jesus is he never gave up on him, even when Peter gave up on himself. My favorite verse of Easter is Mark 16, verse 7, when the angel tells Mary and the other women, tell his disciples and Peter. Why did God instruct the angel to include those two words? Because Peter didn't feel like a disciple anymore. Peter assumed he was no longer a disciple anymore. And God's heart was still going out to him. And I relate to that because I was Peter for years of my life. I didn't feel like God could forgive me for the things I've done. I didn't feel like God would ever accept me. I felt like I would have to spend my entire life proving myself to God. Jesus, I love you. Look how much I'm doing. I know what I did in my past, but look how much I love you. My whole life I spent as Peter. And one day, these two words, and Peter, changed my life. Watch this video with me before we close. Grace is God's unmerited favor for us, his crazy love. And the truth is, many times we struggle understanding it. If you find yourself struggling to understand God's grace, don't beat yourself up. Even the disciples struggled with understanding grace. 
Jesus, is that you? You're alive. I can't believe you're alive. Okay, I was in the boat and I wasn't catching any fish, okay? But I heard this voice and the voice said, cast your net to the other side. And so I'm thinking, I'm a fisherman. I know what I'm doing, but I'm not catching any fish, you know? And so I throw that net over there and then a gaggle of fish pop into that net and I'm going, this is a total miracle. Who could have done that? I need to know who told me to throw the net to the other side. And boom, I look up and I mean, there is you. You're looking at me on the seashore going, it is I, the Lord, and you're alive. I can't believe you're alive. This is awesome. Andrew, get out of the boat. Come on. Peter, yeah. Do you love me? Yes, I love you. I love you. You're alive. This is so great. Good. Hey. Then feed my sheep. Andrew, get out of the boat. Come on, man. It's him. Peter. Yeah. Do you love me? I love you. Yes. And I'm so sorry about that rooster cluck, and I had no idea what that meant, but I do now. I'm better for it. All right. Okay. Then feed my sheep. Andrew, I'm smiling, but I'm serious. Come on, get out of the boat. It's him. Peter. Yeah. Do you love me? Jesus, mere words cannot describe the passion that I have for you. I love you. You know everything. I love you. Good. Good. Then feed my sheep. I didn't even know you had livestock. That is so like you, though. There's something new about you all the time. That's what I love about you. Peter, yeah. do you remember uh, the morning the ladies went to the tomb? Yeah, 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 yeah. We're all in the upper room trying to figure out what to do next, you know, because we thought you were dead. You know, you were dead, you know, and we're trying to figure all that out, you know. And Mary comes running up, and Mary's like saying, beehive, beehive, beehive. And I'm thinking, I'm allergic to bees. Like, keep them out. You know what I'm saying? But as she kept getting closer, I heard her correctly. She was saying, he's alive, he's alive, he's alive. And we're going, who's alive, who's alive? And she said, she was at the tomb, and the tomb was empty. And she said that the, there was an angel there. And the angel said, go tell the disciples and Peter that everything is okay, he is risen. And so me and John, we hightailed it down there. And if John says he beat me, he's totally lying, all right? I beat him, FYI, all right, you know? And we get down there, and I'm looking in that tomb, and it is, it is empty. There's nothing in there, you know what I'm saying? And I'm like, what does this mean? What does this mean? And John is right there. John is so good with words. He should write a book. He is so good with words. And John said, don't you get it, Peter? This is everything Jesus said he was going to do, and you did it, and it's done. Let's go. This is so great. Wait, yeah. the angel said what? Uh, go tell the disciples and Peter that everything is okay. He is risen. You've risen. Let's go. This he is okay. said what? Go tell the disciples and Peter. Go tell the disciples and Peter. You said my name. Why did you say my name? Peter, that's grace. No, no, I don't, I don't deserve that because that night people kept coming up to me asking me if I belonged to you, if I was with you, and I kept denying you left and right, all right? No, it'll take me my whole life to make up for what I did. It was unforgivable for no, what I did. No, What I did on the cross was meant to take what is unforgivable and make it forgivable. That's my grace. It's not about you. It's always about me. That's grace, Peter. I don't know where you're at in your relationship with Jesus today. But what I do know is if he could forgive Peter, he could forgive you. But if he didn't give up on Peter, he would never give up on you. And you need to know this morning, God is not mad at you. God is not disappointed with you. God is not frustrated with you. He's not in heaven thinking, why can't you get your act together? Or what are you doing? Why are you just... There's nothing further from the truth. He just wants the relationship with you. He doesn't want to be your religion. 
He wants to be your father. And he wants you to be a part of his family. And that's the gospel. That's what Easter is all about. Would you close your eyes with me for just a moment? If you're here this morning and you would say, you know what, I'm not where I need to be with Jesus. My relationship is not where it needs to be. Maybe there was a point in your life where you were living for Jesus and you're just not there anymore for whatever reason. Maybe you you viewed Christianity through religion and you got burnt out and you just decided, you know what, that's too hard. I don't want to do that. And I get it. I'd feel the same way if I were you. Or maybe you're here today and you've never been invited to a church. I'm glad you're hearing what the gospel is. But the story of Easter is God loved you so much he couldn't stand the thought of being separated. And the truth is sin separates us from God. All of the bad things we do separate us from a holy God. He can't be in relationship with it. So God sent his son to take all of our sin and pay for it so that God could have relationship with us. So that there would be nothing in your life that separates you from God. And when Jesus died on that cross, he paid for all of your sin, past, present, and future, as a gift to you. And if you would receive that gift, you could be in relationship. And so if you're here today and you need to receive the gift of what Jesus did for you on Easter, you need to make that decision, whether it's for the very first time in your life or you you just need to recommit. I'd like to pray for you. So with every eye closed, out of respect, if you would like me to pray for you this morning to make that decision for Jesus, I want you with nobody looking around, just raise your hand quickly and then put it right back down so that I know who I'm praying for. Thank you, 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 thank you. Father, in the name of Jesus, for all of those people who raised their hand this morning to make a decision to follow you, to receive the gift of your forgiveness, the gift of your love, and in return, give you their life, become part of your family. I pray that this Easter would mark that decision inside of them. And you would welcome them, receive them, forgive them, and draw them into your family today. In the name of Jesus.